Hey, what's up, guys? Chad Hermanson back with Mental Edge Training Coach. Today, we got Josh Towers. Josh, what's going on, dude? How are you? I'm good, Hermie. How are you, buddy? I'm good, man. So we're we're, we're diving in. Summer's just started. Uh, you're in your office doing some mortgage loans, getting to work. How long have you been doing the, the mortgage loans in, in that industry? 2015, I think at the end of 2015, I got into this, um, you know, being retired. Uh, I was just golfing a lot with the boys. We all retired, and uh, I kept digging into the the savings. And yeah. Kendall, my wife, got kind of pissed, and one day she's like, "You need a job." So one of the dudes that I golf with, uh, he did this for a living. He's like, "Just go pass your test, and I'll hire you." And I was like, "All right, cool." I mean, he made it sound that easy. No, it wasn't. It's about <laughs> six months later, and I went through all the uh, all the practice tests and all the studying for like six months. I read it like five times, and then I finally was like, "All right, I think I'm ready." And I went and took the test. You have to get a certain score to pass. It took me a long time uh, to, to like believe that I was ready. And then it came to a point where I was like, even if I don't do this, like I'm not quitting now. Like I put too much time in. I'm going to pass this dang test. So here I am. That's awesome. So, so you're back in the nine to five. You're back in the real world after eight, <laughs> eight years in the big leagues. So let's talk about your story. Uh, you, you, were, you were born and raised in California. Is that correct? Yep, Southern California, Ventura County. Yeah, so walk us through, like, what was high school like for you when you played at Oxnard? What, kind of walk us through that story. Yeah, it, dude, I grew up, I tell my son stories all the time, and, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not bragging. It's just the reality of life in the 90s in Southern California. It was crazy, man. Uh, I was just addicted to baseball. My dad made surfboards for a living. We had a surf shop. We lived on a beach, and so surfing was a big thing for us, but I was addicted to baseball. My uncle, Roger Frash, was the second overall pick by the New York Mets in 1980. Mm. And I think as a young kid, like, I think I was watching him. And I remember seeing, like, as a three-year-old, pajamas of the New York Mets on me and stuff. And I knew I always wanted to play baseball. My brother played a little bit of, like, Little League and stuff. So I was always had him in my head. And I was just addicted, man. Like, uh, wiffle ball every single day of my life. Um, and I used to catch heat because like, I'd go to the beach and people were like, what are you doing here, man? Shouldn't you be on the baseball field? Like, you know, I get all mad because like my dad would make me a surfboard or I'd get a free wetsuit because of the surf shop. But like, it's expensive. And so they would get all butthurt that I didn't want to surf all the time. I just want to play baseball. So I was addicted to it, man. And, and I played other sports. But once we got to high school, I, 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 didn't, I didn't want to do anything but play baseball. And so that's what I did. Um, I remember at one point too, I took like three years off from pitching. I like, I was just sick and tired of pitching. Like there's always a guy that they went to and I was like, I don't want to do this no more. I want to, uh, I want to play short, man. I want to hit, I want to play third. I like the ball coming at me quick, man. That's why I like third base so much. And, and so I stopped. And then once you get to high school, um, you only got so many players and you only got so many players per position and I can pitch. So I just pitched all the time and it would go straight back to shortstop. But, uh, I remember like, like I said, it was crazy. Like I remember like one game we had nine dudes in high school and I remember I got kicked out because uh, the pitcher, I was on third base, the pitcher was talking so much crap. And I remember there was a pass ball and the catcher went to get it and I took off from third to score. And the pitcher, I forgot what he did, but he did something to the catcher and I just flipped the catcher. I took him out. I mean, this back then we used to go cleats up. And I thought I went cleats up around the shin, man. And I flipped him and he didn't get mad at me. I can't think exactly what happened. He went at his own pitcher. He was so mad. I got tossed from the game. So we, we finished the game with eight players. And the uh, reason why – the crazy thing is the reason why we only had nine in the first place is because back where I grew up, it was all gangs. And so 
Like if there was a, an initiation where you had to jump somebody in, dude, my teammates had to go. Like that was their responsibility. That was where their loyalty was. And so like we didn't know if we were going to have 15 dudes or eight dudes. Like we had no idea on a given day, man. It was crazy back then. Real quick, I told my son this story. You know, you don't believe me. So like doing like, um, like Legion stuff. Um, we're in the middle of Oxnard in this field, uh, probably like early high school. In the middle of this field, it's a square, and this community just circles it. And I remember like, like you just see gang members on the porches and stuff, and you'll see like dudes drive by. So we're on the field practicing, and the gang members are over here, and the other gang, the rival gang, drive by over here. And next thing you know, these dudes just take off and sprint right through the field to cut or come off. And so as players, we just got to get down and take a knee and just wait. And they would sprint through the field, and he'd watch them do whatever they do, get in a fight or whatever, and then they would come back, and then you would get back up and start practicing again. And it was just like a way of life. And I tell my son stories like that, and he's like, nah, you're lying. And I was like, man, That's it was funny. crazy. It just so that what means- it is, you know? So are you a blood or a crip? Are you claiming blood? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Man, I tried to stay so distant. It was like, it was crazy. Like, dudes, like I live in one place my whole life, the same house. And so you see so many different like generations coming in and out, but we never moved. And my neighbors were all the same. And then all of a sudden one day, it was just gangs everywhere. Like we couldn't even like walk down the bike path that ran from the beach to the Little League field because you didn't know. And that was like a five or six year span, man, where it just... It got crazy. So you literally like in high school, I remember shutting down high school one year. We didn't go to school for like a week. Schools just shut down because it was always gang fights and it was always uh, Mexicans versus blacks because the whites, we were so few of us that that's how it was. And so you just go to school and there would just be huge gang fights in the quad. And then finally, like I remember just getting shut down for a week or what they did, whatever they did to like to mediate it. And then we go back to school. So the crazy thing is being white, like you just stay back in the cut and you didn't really get messed with. It's just so few of us. It's weird, man. Did that did that form any type of, I guess, inner toughness within you, kind of growing up and watching that type of stuff? Yeah, you know, baseball's crazy in itself. How I'm sure you're you're like this. You don't panic if something happens. You see a car accident or something. Somebody needs help. Like we don't panic. Mm-hmm. Like you go and assess the situation so calmly. Um, because of what, I mean, baseball did so many special things for us. I don't know if we understand that. Um, and that did the same thing. You, you, you learn not to you get going, you get excited inside, you know, you're ready to go, but on the outside, you're very calm and, and you're processing the whole situation and you're, you're seeing everything around you before you, you don't overreact on anything. And I think the combination of the two taught you to slow down a little bit, um, kind of inside. No doubt. Well, I, I'm glad you didn't end up in a gang. Uh, we would have never known Josh Towers. You, you probably wouldn't be alive right now. Yeah. So I'm glad that didn't happen for you. So walk us through. So you you were playing third base, playing some infield. So I'm you, at some point you get to Oxnard Junior College, correct? Out, out yeah, of high school. What what was your? What, Sorry, out of high school, um, I didn't have any offers. I think maybe the Redlands in California was the only school that really offered me anything. I know, like, you know, I don't know if like, old school, but, you know, remember those three-by-five cards that, like, the scouts would give you and you oh, fill yeah. them out? Oh, yeah. So I remember filling one of them out with the Mets, and I remember, like, like one time somebody, like, the Mets scout told me about velocity. I hit 85 miles per hour, by the way, one time in high school. That's the only – that's the highest I ever hit. Like, I don't remember anything. I just was addicted to baseball, and so – Junior college was the only avenue for me. Um, 
and I made them, and I wanted to play short and third and stuff. I didn't just want to pitch, and they just wanted me to pitch. And so I remember, like, going on a recruiting trip to Ventura, which is our rival, and I made them think that I was going to go there because I wanted to play a position. Yeah. And they were not happy at Oxnard about that. I was always going to Oxnard. It's where my uncle went. Like, I was always going. But I wanted to play, so I, I tricked them into thinking so I would play a different position. But I don't know, Chad, what happened, but from my high school senior year, to my freshman year of Oxnard, like I went from like being good, but I went from being good to like, oh, you're really good. Like mm -hmm. what happened? And I don't know. I don't know if you like just kind of like, even though I lived in the same house, you kind of grow up with older guys. You're in college, more responsibility. You're kind of leaving home, but you're kind of not. I remember training on the beach, which was awesome. I remember introduced to like shoulder exercises for the first time. So I think that probably played a big part. But next thing you know, like, you know, you're throwing 89 miles per hour and and I, I had the worst curveball you've ever seen. Didn't have a change up. Like, I don't even know how I got drafted today, but there were scouts at every game. And, and I, like, I know that, like, it, it was a funny thing, man. Like, 14, 15 scouts at every game, which was fantastic. You get excited. You start to know you're going to get drafted. So you start taking, like, electives in college. <laughs> if I don't have to go back to school. Uh, but my uncle told you it was a second overall pick. So he's like 6'4", like 240. He's a big, just a big man. Yeah. My dad's like 6'2", 240-ish. And my brother, they were watching me pitch one day. It was like the first inning. And my brother walked in. And he says to my dad, how's Josh doing? Because he's like an inning or two late. And like my dad said that everybody turned around and kind of looked at him and was like, who's this? And he's like, that's his brother. Now, my brother is like 6'6", six, six, like 290s, huge. Jeez. So my dad said immediately everybody was like, oh, heck yeah. Like, this dude's going to grow. Yeah. He's getting bigger. <laughs> like, he got all excited. I tricked him. I never grew a pound. Yeah. Um, but those are the types of things that factored in. And I remember I tell my kids all the time, like, I asked my scout one time, Gil Kupski with the Orioles, I asked him why he drafted me. And he said, the day I knew I was drafting you, you were pitching in the eighth inning of a game at home and you were still chasing foul balls while you were pitching. He goes, and that was the day I knew I was drafting you. And I was like, man, that's crazy. He goes, I just knew like, if you're still willing to chase foul balls in a day that you're pitching, like you're committed to it and meant that much. He goes, I knew I had the right guy. And I was like, that's awesome. That's funny. Cause did you ever, you got gangs members all around. Are you, are you worried about getting foul balls? <laughs> getting in the, <laughs> the crossfire? <laughs> it was crazy. Like I'm telling you, man, uh little league our coach one day goes hey where's uh where's toledo and i was like and i just pointed and you just see like six dudes they were initiating somebody in their gang and he had to run over there and do it and come back in full uniform and i was just and it's so crazy think about these stories and it was oh, just yeah. like i don't know it just you don't mess with them they don't mess with you that's crazy. that's crazy man <laughs> That's really cool. So you so you get drafted by the Orioles at a Oxnard College. Was that after the, your first year or a second year there? Yeah, first year um, things just clicked. Like I said, that first year and those guys started showing up. So after that, after my first year, like I kind of knew and I always wanted to play pro ball. Like I told you, it's the only thing in life I ever wanted. I used to. I remember in in, in school we'd go get the um, you go to the grocery store and you get the paper bags and then we use them as book covers. And I would just sign everybody's all the time, like keep this, this is going to be like, I always, my whole dream was just to play baseball. And so when I knew I was going to get drafted, um, to me, it didn't matter where I was going, no matter what, but I finally, like, after my first year, I got college offers. So after my first year, I could have went to Texas tech. Um, and after my second year, I could have went to Miami 
or USC. So I had like really good schools, yeah. you know, calling me. So the possibility was there, but it never, I was never going. I was always going to sign. Um, ironically, and, and you know, Dave Risky. So years later, I meet Dave. We play against each other our whole lives. We moved to Vegas at the same time. We move on the same street together. We always stop. And we're telling a story, and we went to junior college at the same time. We had the same, basically, path. And he got offered to go to Texas Tech after his freshman year as well. The crazy thing is, is, like, years later, we're super close friends, but we both could have ended up at the same college at the same time in 97 and didn't even know it. Like, it's wow. a small world-type stuff. But, um, yeah, man, it was – I had some good offers, but the Orioles came knocking, and I had to go. That's awesome. So you get drafted by them. You start your minor league career. What's that like for you? Do you? Are you a starter all the time? Are you coming out of the bullpen? What was your role? Yeah, I look back on that too. I didn't look at stats one day like to, to see. I'm like, you know, you have certain memories of certain things. Um, I was a reliever when I first came out. I went to, to, to Bluefield my first year, went straight there, and I was relieving. Um, and then my second season, my first full, full season after spring training, I went to low A for like a week or two, and then they sent me to high A for the whole season. And I was a reliever the whole time there. And then all of a sudden after that, they made me a starter. So in 1998, my second full season, I became a starter. Um, and it was weird. It just like, I don't, like, I didn't care for stats. You know, they put the, this, they, they used to put the stats in the clubhouse. We'd all read it. I didn't care about, like, we just so addicted to playing. Like I just, we ran hard off the field, but we ran harder on the field. And, and like, we didn't have the same, thoughts or cares or concerns or worries that these guys have these days is played the game and, and yeah. hope that we got called in the office and promoted. So that year I became a starter. Um, and I remember like, I read something one time, um, Peter Gammons wrote like Josh Towers after that season, like a, a 145 innings, nine walks and 11 hit batter. And then he put like, huh, with a question mark next to it. And I remember reading that and I was like, wait, did I only walk nine guys? Hold on a second. And I had to go back to the stats to look, and I only walked nine guys. And I guess at one point during that season, I went 70 innings without walking somebody. Wow. I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know. I just, like, and that's when I started to, like, why was that? Like, obviously, now I realize I'm a control guy, but why am I a control guy? I started to, like, really, like, study everybody's delivery, everybody's mechanics. I would be involved in every, like, bullpen session. I was always next to the coaches. I needed to understand why. And that's when I started to understand like my delivery compared to like other people's deliveries, which helps me now in life trying to teach and get, and get back a little bit. But it's also the same year, my first year, like you asked about, you know, influences. Mojo Basket was my pitching coordinator. He was a huge influence. And like one year he goes, hey, you need to, you need to learn a, sl a slider. Your curveball is not going to cut it. And I was like, what do you mean? And, I, and he taught me once again about, when your shoulders go this way as a right-handed pitcher, there's, there's no leverage to create a curveball. I didn't know that. When I'm this way, I could throw a slider and getting rid of that curveball. I kept it, but getting rid of it as my main off-speed pitch and introducing the slider and then working on the changeup, like that changed the game as well for me because that curveball was never going to be a major league curveball given what I learned later was my mechanics. So then I would just throw it to you, right? You just to show it as something super slow. So you yeah. go, okay, there's a pitch. And then, I would, you know, come with something else off it. But it's, it's crazy, like, you know, the different levels of the game and what you learn along the way and how you incorporate different things to make who you are to try to climb that ladder to the big leagues. It's, 
There's so many different things. It makes it so awesome. So on your shoulders, you're talking about mechanically. Was he saying you don't want your shoulder, you want them tilted or you, you want them more forward? Well, see, so that's the thing. Like you are who you are. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You got to work. If, if somebody's trying to make every pitcher the same, like let's, let's get rid of that guy because that's not a good coach. Right. We are who we are. Our bodies do certain things. We all have different capabilities. Um, let's see if I can stand up real quick. So, yeah. so if, if I'm a right-handed pitcher, you see it in Jacob DeGrom a little bit today. If I'm a right-handed pitcher, I get up here, and then this shoulder almost dives a little bit, and then I start to drift forward. So my timing, like I don't – complete opposites. I don't get here, and then I don't get on my backside and create this lever. So my shoulder, like most people get here, I would get this way. And so by getting this way, I didn't create the leverage that I needed to whack to yeah. throw a curveball. Okay. So if I try to throw a curveball from here, it's impossible. I need this. I had this. So that shoulder like this, I wouldn't teach it. It's not ideal. If you do it, we can work with it. But it condensed my miss zone. So if I'm here and going this way, my miss area becomes condensed. Well, if I'm up here, I can pull off and do a lot of different things. I can bring in this this wide array of misses where you see a lot of arm side misses a lot and then it can go anywhere as opposite side as wherever your shoulder is well mine because mine went the other way it condensed my miss zone so my control was better by default i had to learn which i learned in a ball okay now i understand what my body's actually doing and what complements it and then once you learn that you can you know have the right arsenal and then i can go and learn the hitters and then attack you with both those things combined and then you start to you have a game plan so yeah man it's like we're all different and that's why like if i go give a lesson or something or if i see somebody i'm coaching i always say like if if, if there's somebody who sees you once and tries to change you like you don't want that guy either because we're all different and now i got to understand how somebody works mentally so yeah. i need to see you yeah. throw or i need to see you swing i'm sure you're the same way with the swing and okay now i got an idea of what your body wants to do naturally now we can work with that yeah, how do you incorporate that mindset in, with a pitcher? What, what kind of conversations do you have, say, and you're, you're working in a bullpen? What does that look like? It's um, fun. Like, it's fun. Like, if uh, it's it, – I don't mean, like, that question has so many answers, obviously. Like, I'm just thinking in my head now, if I'm in the bullpen and watching somebody, like, you'll see me behind them. And the next thing you know, I'm on the side. And the next thing you know, you'll see me by the catcher. And then I'm on the other side. And you're starting to, like – in your head, take snapshots of the delivery and you're piecing it together. You know, are we separating on time? What are we doing? Are we staying closed? There's just so many different things and what we're trying to accomplish. One of the, like, the most simplistic things for me, I remember dating back. So when I was like seven, my dad's buddy who also made surfboards in San Diego was friends with Tim Flannery. I never met Tim Flannery to this day. Um, I always wanted to, but I never met him. Tim Flannery, as a favor, sent me a letter and a signed card when I was seven years old. And it said, Josh, sorry about the stationery, but I'm on the road and it's all I have. I hope you're playing well this season. And make sure two things, hit the ball where it's pitched and have lots of fun. Yeah. Your friend, Tim Flannery. And as a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, 10-year-old, I was like, I still have this thing, by the way. I was so mad. I was pissed. I was like, wait a minute. It has to be more complex than that like there has to be more it can't be that sim that simple it can't be like tim there has to be more you're a major league baseball player it, like it can't it can't be hit the ball where it's pitching that point it can't be and you know the higher we go 
the more we simplify the game itself to be able to do our job. When we start to like crowd it with all these different things, it gets so confusing. Yeah. And then you start to learn about teaching where you can only teach one or two things at a time. Otherwise, if you're teaching three or four, your brain starts to blend it and then you actually set them back opposed to push them forward. So you really want to teach one thing at a time for a certain amount of time till like their body takes on naturally before you move on to something else. And that's kind of the same thing with, with us. We try to like overcomplicate it at times. And here we are, I got this major league baseball player like making it so simple. And I was so pissed. And I didn't learn that until we probably got to the big leagues is when I actually, I think one day in the big leagues, I was like, that's what he meant. And that's the thing about like, if I get you to just throw the ball downhill. So if we're playing catch, if I put my glove near my head, near my chest, or if I put it down on my waist, it's going to create three different release points for you. If I keep the glove up here and let you throw up here all day, when you get on the mound that's downhill, tilted up, and we're going downhill, you're going to be up. But if I can keep you down at my waist when we're playing catch at any distance, 140, 120, 80, whatever it is, you're going to set the release point that you need to be more specific to what's going to happen on the mound. With that said, if you're able to throw the ball down and away, then that means you've got to stay close. That means you have to be on time. That means everything that we have to do, you're doing correctly. Opposed to if the ball's up and arm side, you could be flying open, you could be late, you could be trying to throw too hard, you could be dropping your elbow, you can do all kinds of things. Right. So one of the main things that I do at times, because you, you know, there's a time that you get advanced and a time that you don't, is, is just by where I place my glove playing catch with somebody, I can teach their body how to get into the proper place without them really knowing what I'm doing. And then we can get advanced from there. And then afterwards I can explain what I just explained to you. And they go, Oh, so sometimes I don't want them thinking about anything. You know, right. I want to control the brain as well. So yeah, like you learn that, okay, you can't simplify this at some point, but I was pissed as an eight year old. I was like, nah, that's not it. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Even at eight that you're, that those thoughts were there. You're like, yeah. dude, this game's harder than that. I, I got to make <laughs> it. I got to make it harder for me to achieve something. You know what's funny? I listened to, um, it was probably the end of last season, uh, Brooks Kepka, golfer. And I listened to something where his mom was talking and he wanted to golf as a kid. And she said, like, the day she knew, because she would like steering towards school and some other stuff. And, and she was telling him one day, like, I think this is how she said it, something like, you need to focus more on your schoolwork. And he's like, I'm having a hard time. He's like, Mom, when I sit in class, all I picture is the flight of the golf ball and the spin on it and what it's doing in air and how I can get it to do things when it hits the green. Wow. And she goes, that's the day that she knew that there was something real about what he was doing in golf, but that's how his brain worked. And I'm sure once again, with you, there, there's probably the same things. There has to be something along the way that like, that's where your brain goes to. Like at times I feel like it chooses us. We didn't really choose it. Yeah, I agree with that. Totally. Totally. So, so you're now, you're in the big leagues. You, yeah. you get, you get to the big leagues with the Orioles, right? What, yes. what was your, what was your call up like? What, what was happening with that situation? Man. So the year before I got called up in 2001 Then the year before in 2000, um, we went to like, we knew some people in, in Syracuse where we, where we played and that lived there that we made friends with like a family friend and stuff. And one of the guys was dating one of the girls. And so we would go over their house Italian, they would always cook us dinner. So we were over their house one night after the game, uh, hammered, and I fell off the trampoline. Of course, <laughs> the story to the Orioles was I fell down the stairs at my house. Everybody falls down the stairs. And I, I remember waking up the next morning, and my shoulder, like I'd separated it, 
yeah. so this was like, this was September. So I like September first ish. And I so I missed my call up. That I think I would have got. I was told later I would have got that call up. Um, so the next year I get called up, and I remember we're in we're in Syracuse, and I was running down the right field line because I always get to the field early. Like, I mean, if I was at the field at one o'clock, I was I was late. You know, like I was always early. So always would get my workout and my running in. So I'm down the field running about that time. And I see my pitching coach coming walking down and I'm thinking to myself, like, why is he coming down here right now? He don't ever come down here right now. He's no reason to be out here. No one's throwing. And I just started to get nervous. Yeah. I'm like, oh shit. Like, could this be it? <laughs> Am I done? <laughs> like, what's going on? Like, I started to get nervous and he just, he gets out there and he's like, hey, Skip wants to see you in the office. And then I kind of look at him as we're walking back and he kind of just gives me that, like, that, that kind of like look and that little wink and that like, and I was like, oh shoot. Now I'm really nervous. Right. I trust me, man. I feel so guilty of what I did next. I get in the office. I sit down. Skip tells me something happened to big leagues. and I'm going up for the first time. And now like you, everything you work for your whole life is just like, it's, Oh my God, this is really happening. Like every dream I had as a child, like all those signed things, everything you're like, Oh my God, here it is. <laughs> and I said, it's about time. What? <laughs> what did you just say? I was like, after I thought about it on the on the plane flight, I was like, did you really just say that? Like, I felt like it was such a disrespectful thing. Like, I was supposed to get to the big leagues. Like, no, you earned that right. Like, you don't, we're not supposed to get there. You have an opportunity. Somebody created it. You created it, but somebody else gave it to you. Like, I couldn't believe I said that. So I get to Baltimore and I go to the bullpen. Um, I forgot who got hurt or whatever. And I went to the bullpen first. So, um, God, it's crazy. I'm picturing it right now. Uh, I get up and my numbs call, see my bring him in. And so the gate opens and I'm walking in and I'm playing the Tampa Bay Rays and Ben Grieve had just hit a double. So Ben Grieve is standing on second base. Now you got Cal Ripken, uh, Bordick, yeah. <laughs> Ben Grieve, uh, I think Brian Roberts, David Segui. I don't remember if it was Fordyce catching. I'm not sure who was catching. I'm trying to think. Yeah, those are. Those Orioles teams were loaded. Yeah, yeah. I think it was dice. And as I'm running in the longest run ever, I, I just felt like when I ran by Ben Grieve, I looked up and he looked like he was 10 feet tall. Like, you yeah. know, I felt like I was like in a video game. Like, it wasn't real. He looked so big to me. And I'm looking and I turn to the mound and you see Sagi and Ripken and you see your catcher and you see your coach. And like, it was surreal. So, my luck, Vinny Castillo is batting. Oh, Lord have mercy. Like, this dude's hitting like he drops bombs. And uh, first pitch, fastball down and away. It wasn't down and away. It was right down the middle, belt high. And he pops it up to foul territory. And see, he catches it for the third out. And uh, <laughs> so one pitch, we go sit down on the bench. I do my little routine where I get my water first. I sit in a certain spot. And I sit down. And Cal Ripken comes and sits next to me. And Rip was always good to me. And I look at him. And he looks at me, puts his hand on my chest. My shirt's moving. Yes. And he goes, yes. yeah, you're going to be okay. And he walked away. <laughs> like, oh, Lord. Oh, man, it was, it, was, uh, it was crazy. Like, it was so surreal. It, it didn't seem real at the time, man. Um, cool memories playing with Cal last year, obviously, but, like, scared. Like, it wasn't – like, it took me a long time to, to play in the big leagues and realize that, okay, wait a minute, dude. Like, you're, you're, you're part of this. Like, Stop looking at the name on the back of the jersey and start seeing them as just outs and teammates, right? So it took me a while, man. Like, I was starstruck for a long time. 
Yeah. So you, you still had to kind of develop that belief that you belong there. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It took a long time. Like I believed in my stuff. That was like, I never doubted. Like, um, I just felt like I could throw a ball anywhere I wanted and I hated walking people. So I, I had, had faith in my control and I was very arrogant on the mound, uh, towards you as a hitter, like outside the lines, like no on the lines, like I'll, you know, let's go get in the box, talk smack. I'll tell you what's coming. Like I was that arrogant, but even though internally, like, you know how it is, you just flip a switch when you're getting a box or when you get on the mound. But, you know, it took me a minute to, like, to get past who they were and that they're just, like, like I had to, like, you know, like, it just took a minute to, like, the jersey was removed and, okay, yeah. it's just a silhouette of a person and he has a hole here and he has a hole here. And if I get him to do this and I can, like, it took a while to get to that point. So what did you, so I don't know if you would label yourself, so you were a control specialist as a righty, but you didn't throw 95 plus. Explain, explain, because I think there's a lot of guys that, and kids that listen that, you know, as a scout, yeah, we, we, we have to go and we got to find velocity to kind of get it started. But there is something, and, and what's interesting is you got drafted, uh, scouts started to look at you a little bit more your freshman year. So, I mean, I mean, we could say you were a late bloomer, but it's just like you were what 18 maybe 19 it's yeah. like are, are, it's just interesting how we look at it like oh yeah you're, you're already supposed to be polished when you're 15 and 16 i'm like well, how is that possible you know I, I feel guilty like for the kids today because they're under that mindset your son's probably like that my son's like that my son is left-handed he's got four pitches it's like i look at his stuff when i play catch on him i'm just like i wish like i wish i had your stuff right I wish and he hit he hit 85 the other day in our pen. It's the hardest he's ever hit. And he's a, and he's a junior. Uh, and he's worried. He's, all he talks about is that I don't throw hard enough. I don't throw hard enough. And I was like, man, I never had that. Like, that was a never a thought in my, I never even knew how hard I threw. Like it never crossed my mind once. And so, yeah, it's like today these kids have to be polished in order to get an opportunity. And that's unfortunate. And, and good point too, because I thought about that a lot. It, like it took me a minute to develop. I wasn't a high school developer. It took, it took junior college. I didn't have the opportunity to go to D1 until after junior college for one year. Then I created it. I've always said that about Jason Worth. I don't know how Jason felt, but Jason was a first round pick with us, with the Orioles. If Jason wasn't a first round pick, I don't think he would have made it to the big leagues. He kept getting opportunities um, because of where he was drafted. It took Jason until he got to Dodger Stadium to develop like into who he was as a major league star. And then next thing you know, he's He's an all-star and he's all these wonderful things with Philly and with Washington. Um, and he gets this enormous contract that he, that he, you know, he deserved. But what if he wasn't a first-round pick? Because he was a late developer too. And then some guys like Bryce Harper developed. He could probably play in the big leagues at 15. Who knows? He was a stud, right? So we all develop at different times, but that's why there's different levels. But now you, you, you fast forward to today and it's like, all right, well, does my son want to go to junior college just to play baseball? Because he's a super smart kid and he has dreams of going to D1 schools. And so is that a, is that a possibility for him? It was the only possibility for me to keep playing, right? So like, it's just so much different for these guys, man, today. And, and in the minor leagues, it's, it's, it's very similar to the same thing. Like you put a uniform on them and you think they're polished. And it's like, hold on a second, man. They're not. They're kids. They're leaving home for the first time. They just got different stuff when you put a uniform and a hat and you don't recognize their face. You just watch the ball come out and you go, Wow. Yeah. Wow, they're still kids, man. Like, it's weird. It's so weird. And that's why minor league baseball today, they, like, the commissioner wants to get rid of, like, 40 teams. 
that's a lot of players, and they want to cut the draft. We were 56-round draft, then it was a 35, then 30. This year's going to be five. Next year, maybe 10 or 20. I don't know. Like, now you want to get rid of teams and players? There's a reason why there's seven levels to the minor leagues. There's a reason why there's junior college and then normal college after high school. There's a reason normal college is very disrespectful. There's a reason why there's all these different levels. It's because we all develop differently. I don't know. I just know that we all have a peak, and whenever we find that, we find that. But to 86 teams and opportunities for players who could be the next Mike Trout or Albert Pujols or whoever that just needed an extra year or two, like, I think we've proven enough over time that that not all first rounds make it and not all 56 rounds don't. You know, it's, like, it's, just, it's just weird to me that we're doing that. Yeah, and, and that's why I think the, just the game of baseball overall, it's so difficult, right? Yeah. It, like, yeah. we're, we're trying to – I don't think people realize, even though – and I felt the same way when I got to the big leagues, like, we have our own personal stories, but mm-hmm. you still – you don't even feel like you're close to being ready in a way. You right. know, you, you have some kind of confidence about parts of your game, right? But Go you're ahead. not, right? That's the other thing. Like, I, I, I work with these guys today, and they might have played, like, minor league baseball or independent ball or whatever they played. They didn't really think it's the big leagues, and they feel like they know the game. And on one hand, they do know the game. On the other hand, they don't know anything about the game. Mm-hmm. And I can't explain to people how much more baseball I learned in the big leagues than I did – everything in my whole life combined before that. And then you try to stay in the big leagues and then you try to put a couple years, three years, four years, five years, whatever, then you reach free agency potentially, hopefully, I don't know. And it's, that's another level of the game. And it's then you, like there's so many levels after you get to the big leagues. And I learned so much there that it's hard to explain to somebody who's never been there that there's so much more that can be taught, that can be learned. you know, you watch all these, you know, fighting and you watch UFC and you watch all these different whatever you're watching and it takes years to 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 develop into like a contender and people don't understand that. Like just because you're there doesn't mean you're there yet. Yeah, no doubt. That like it's you know, there's triple A, right? Three mm-hmm. A's there. You could say big leagues four A. I mean there there's even five A's and six A's combined in that, right? Well, bonds is on a different level than all yeah. of us. I mean bonds <laughs> yeah. is ten A, whatever you want to call it. Right, stuff like that. So I'm, I'm actually really interested. I mean, you freaking played with Cal Ripken. He was yes. one, of, one of my idols. Um, he was a guy that, you know, I played shortstop in high school for a little bit. And, and then you're like, you had Cal Ripken. And then A-Rod came up and Jeter and Nomar, all these guys. But Cal was the guy. And I even called, you know, I didn't really name my kid Callen after Cal Ripken, but I call him Cal. So <laughs> that association is always there with Cal Ripken. What was it like to play with him? Man, like, I wish I followed him more. I followed some other people a little more, but I wish I followed Rip more. Like, Rip, like I told you before, he was so good to me. And I think he liked young kids because he loves teaching the game, as we know now. He loves teaching it. And so he always felt like he could teach me something. He would, like, I would stand next to him and we're watching the TV inside real quick, and there would be, like, a, a double cut from left center. And he would start teaching me about what the short shot should do ahead of time and where the second baseman should be and why and when they should look. And he's teaching me, even knowing that I'll never be in that situation, but like he needed to teach somebody and he was always the guy for me. I never like just the most amazing person like that you can, like there's a few of them that you come across, maybe a handful in your lives and he's on that list. Like I remember going to lunch with him one day my rookie year and 
those guys stand outside the hotels and ask for, you for your autograph. And Cal always had to stay at a different hotel because it would just get too crazy. And it was his last year. So we were going city to city for the last time for him. And we went to lunch one day and this guy comes up and he asked Cal to sign some cards. And Rip said, be honest with me, man. Like, what are you going to do? You got 18 cards. Like, what do you, like, what do you, what, what do you need this many autographs for my boy? Right. He goes, honestly, with the truth, because I want the truth. He goes, because I'll sell yours for a profit. He goes, no offense, but Josh's is not worth that much money yet. Yours is worth a ton. I can make a profit and I can feed my son. And Sal goes, or Cal goes, how old's your son? And he said, he's 10. And he showed him a picture. And he goes, all right, man, because you're honest. And he signed all of them for him. For wow. other people, like he knew that they weren't honest. The stories didn't match and he wouldn't sign because it was just like, you don't need that many. But for this guy, he did. And so, like, just watching him do that and, like, you talk about slowing the game down. It's so light down for me. Like, you know, processing certain things. And, you know, there's times you don't want to do stuff. But then, you know, why is this person in that situation? And watching, by the way, he hit a home run. Every last game of the last series, like if we went to San Diego for the last time or wherever he went for the last time, he hit a home run the last game of every series. Every series, the entire season, he hit a home run the last night. You're like, this, is this a joke? Like, is it really yeah. happening? Yeah. But so during batting practice, if they would let the fans in and they would line up the walkway and then all the way around until the line stopped. And so Cal, after he hit in the first group, would go and start signing autographs. And he would come in after we were like done. He would, he would be the last one coming in. And you would look at his hand and it would just be like all pen and marker. Like, Rick, what is, what is going on? He, not only would he sign every autograph for every person, so they would set it up to where like you couldn't get back in line twice, you know? Um, so he'd sign every autograph for every person, but he tested every marker, every pen on his arm first to make sure it wrote so that he would give them the best autograph possible wow. for the last one he ever signed for them. I was like, wow, like just the things that he would do, like the attention to detail on everything. It just like once you start to be around him, you go, okay, now I get why you played that many games in a row and never took a day off. Like his mindset was just different. It was unbelievable, man. Yeah, I mean, I remember watching, I believe it was the All-Star game that year. He yeah. hit a homer, right? And I, I believe he hit a homer at the game that he broke the record, right? And it was just like, this is a movie. Like this is – you know, it's, it's insane. It was. Like, you know what's crazy? Uh, the very last series we played Fenway, we played Boston, sorry, in Camden, we played Boston. Uh, everybody's there. The president comes, and you're like, the president's standing next to you, and like, what's going on right now? Like, it's real. And David Cohn's pitching the last game, and uh, we had added seats in Camden Yards. There's so many more fans than ever. It's the most epic, like, just environment of all time. And you just – the whole Red Sox team's on the bench rooting for Rip every time he came up. And Coney's just grooving fastballs. Like, just grooving. Like, eh. <laughs> and Cal flew out to the warning track, I think, four times. and couldn't go deep the last game – the last series. It was the only time he didn't hit a home run, man. And you just see it. Like, Cone's pitching, and he's rooting for him, trying to give him one. His, the, the Red Sox are rooting for Cal to hit one. Like, just what he meant to everybody in the game was yeah. just – it's, it's, it's almost unmatchable in today's world. Yeah, I mean, for a player to play as long as he did and with the same team, you know, yeah. it, was, it, it was incredible. And, and it, it is hard. It's hard to find guys that are like that, that are the loyalty, you know, and I can't even imagine what he means to the city of Baltimore. Um, yeah, all the things he's done and giving back, all the things he does, yeah. the minor league team in Aberdeen, everything. Yeah. So, so you move on from the Orioles, you go to the Blue Jays, and that's where I initially met you because I came out. I came out of the Blue Jays. Um, it was actually my last year, 
last big league game I ever had was with the Blue Jays um, during the regular season. I'm up there for about a week or two. Um, I get my rib cracked lay, laying on a laying on a table because I had a bad back. I get my rib cracked, and I'm like, and then I get sound like set down like two days later. Um, I'm like, well, there goes that season. That was awesome. Um, but that that that's, that's where we met. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you know that story. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, we start in Syracuse, right, in AAA, yeah. right, and and it's freezing cold, and I, I've always kind of had some back issues and stuff, and uh, I, I play better in warmer weather, you know, loosening up, and yeah, so I get called up about, I start off hot in Syracuse, I get called up a week later, uh, my back was already kind of sore, like just, it was stiff, um, and then we had this specialist, and I, I don't remember his name, his name is not important, but he would come in, he would work on like Carlos Delgado, you know, a couple yeah. guys. I think he was more of a physical therapist type massage specialist, if you will. Um, so he had, I had him work on my back. So I'm laying on the back of the, I'm laying on the training table, got my leg over. Um, so he's going to just do a simple crack with my back. And, you know, sometimes you gotta, you gotta put your hand on the ribs or whatever to get that force. And he, and he goes like that and we hear a pop like like that and and I kind of like I don't remember this we didn't know what happened but I, we kind of looked at you like that was weird you know but it didn't it didn't hurt right away and then I kind of got up and started moving around I'm like God, something, something something's not right um but I didn't know it was cracked because I I went to BP I did my thing for like two because I was only up there for like a week I mean it was really short and about five of those days I'm like I I couldn't sleep. I couldn't breathe. Oh no! I'm like, oh, no. yeah. Then I, then I, I'm like, uh, Woody. If you remember, Woody was our trainer in Syracuse. Mm -hmm. and I, I got sent back down. And I go, Woody. I'm like, something's wrong, dude. Like, I, I can't sleep. I can't breathe at night. He's like, all right. Well, just when you get back to Syracuse, we'll do a an MRI or whatever. And sure enough, I had a, a broken rib. Um, that of uh, not that we want to make money this way, but did you get put back on a major league deal? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, I had to file a grievance and all that stuff that, you know, we, we got to cover ourselves as players. Right. And um, so I, I was in a, you know, if you ever crack a rib, that's like a month at least of not, you can't do anything. You're trying to rotate and swing. You're trying to create. You can't do yeah. it. Like I tried, I'm like, dude, I can't, there's no way. So I ended up, and I was at that time, three kids bracketing the kids were already home and I'm like, and I'm already kind of an emotional mess, you know, just kind of like freaking another thing just happened, you know, <laughs> I'm like, sure. I'm like, so I, they just sent me home. I'm like, I'm not going to sit around here for a month and, and cause I'm not going to have a good attitude about this. So I, I need to be with my wife. I think she was even close to, um, she might've even been close to being pregnant with our, our last kid. Um, but yeah, so that, that was a story. So that's back to, that's how we met. Mm -hmm. we, we were teammates in Toronto. So you, you had kind of, you were established a little bit now as a starter. You were a part of the rotation. Um, yeah. So you're flowing. Now you and I, you knew Roy Holiday, right? The late, great Roy Holiday was drafted in my draft class. Mm -hmm. um, tell us about Roy Holiday. What can you teach us about him? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Like, I remember facing Roy in AAA a couple of years earlier. Um, and I remember, like, just – I didn't sit the dugout too much. I was bored, you know, like in and out. But every time he pitched, it was just weird. You just kind of watched. Like, he always knew there was something about him. Um, but I didn't really put too much stock in it when I played with the Orioles or anything else. You know, like, it just 
you know, when you saw him, you saw him, but it was not a big deal to me because I didn't know the man. And then uh, you get to Toronto and you get to know him. And at first, like, you can always be off put a little bit. Like, see, is he, is he, is he mean? Is he, does he not like nobody? Like, right. why does he act like that? And then you get to know him and you realize he's one of the best guys on planet earth. Um, first off, you're not going to get to the field earlier than him. Go try because then it becomes a competition and you're going to be having breakfast at the field for a nine o'clock game and you don't want that. <laughs> you know, a little example, we're running one day, me, him, and uh, the strength coach, and we're in Toronto running and this just normal dude in, in the middle of Toronto, just a normal person out running the lake. He goes by us, just jogging. And Roy kind of gave that look to Donovan and Donovan's like, nope. It was like, it was like all of a sudden something switched. Like, oh, did he just challenge me? Like it is, did he just run by me? And it was like, no. Don't do it. Fill off, fill off and go back to the stadium. And it, like the dude shows up like 45 minutes later because he took it as a challenge from that dude on the street who nobody knew he was, just a runner. And so he like tried to match that dude for miles. And like there was always just this competition thing inside of him. But he was so – got the most prepared dude of all time. Uh, the minor league – coordinator for the Red Sox, um, Dave Abraham right now is our video guy back then. Yeah. And I remember Roy was, I was walking by the video room one day and Roy called me in and I turned to Abe's and I was like, how long has he been in here? And he's like, it's been a while. And he goes, I want to show you something. And he, we were getting ready to go to Boston. That was our next start. I'm pitching after him. Uh, and he goes, it was just Veritech Euclid, Veritech Euclid, Veritech Euclid, nonstop. And he's like, what'd you see? And I was like, I didn't see him swinging a curveball. And he's like, yeah. I've been in here for, he's been here for a couple hours. He pulled up hundreds of at-bats and not one time did Veritech or Euclid swing at a first pitch curveball. So we know the stats. If I get ahead 0-1 to pose if I'm behind 1-0 um, in my favor, obviously. And so he realized that we can throw a first pitch, give me over curveball, not our good curveball, just a whatever rolling curveball. And they're never going to swing at it. So we pitched back-to-back um, when we got to Fenway. We just threw flipped in first pitch curveballs, boom, 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 for strikes every single time. And for four bats and four bats, we're ahead 0-1 on those guys. And I don't think they did anything the whole series because mm. we had the advantage in our favor. And then we can do whatever we want and get a little bit tougher. That's what he would do. That's the, like, that was the, the, the time that he would put into every part of his game to make sure that it was on point. Um, he didn't miss a step. He's a Hall of Famer for a reason. He's the most dominant dude. I mean – the first year when I got to, because I was, I got let go by the Orioles in 02. I went 0-12 and 02. I was supposed to be like, they hand me the key to the city. And then the next offseason was the, a, a disaster. And I went 0-12 and I get released. So I show up in, in Toronto in 03. And I'm pitching after him when I get called up. And like, I went 9-1, and I think, or something like that. I didn't really look at the stats, but it was really good. And it was all because, like, dudes were so frustrated facing him. were so pissed. Dudes would ask out of the lineup. No one wanted to face him. It was so nasty. It's cut and sink. And he was so filthy at 94, just barreling in on your hand. It was like they were so frustrated and hungover because they'd go out and drink and be pissed. And I would get the worst version of them the whole time. And I was like, this is beautiful. I got to take this all here. He's great, man. He was great. Yeah, it's in, 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 and it's interesting because – you know, he's passed away. You know, he, he, he would love planes. He was flying. Uh, was just a horrific day for the anybody that knew him. Now, and it's an interesting story because when I got sent down, you know, in Toronto, in, they had a beautiful locker room, right? It was just yeah. big league, right? It was perfect. You see and, 
Yeah, I bet. I bet. But I remember getting getting told that I'm going to be sent down, right? And I, and all there's so many thoughts and emotions that go through when you get sent down, because um, you're like, I battled to get up here again. You know, I have a I have a broken rib, cracked rib, and now I'm being sent down. And his locker was only about maybe three or four um, away from from mine. I was to the left of his now, and I spent a whole spring training with you guys, um, and I had a really I didn't know what to think because there were times when I'd walk down the hallway and it was just me and him, you know, and we're, we're both kind of West coast guys. And I'm like, I think he knows who I am. We were drafted the same year. And I was like, what's up Roy? And he would just walk right past me. Not even say a word. Right. And I'm just like, like, is this guy a prick or is he? Yeah. So it was a hard read. Right. So I'm just kind of like, I, I took it as like, okay, well, maybe he just, he's so focused. Maybe he's so into his training. It took a lot, dude. I'm telling you, Ernie, it took so much to crack that code. Yeah. Trying to get him to come out for like just one beer during the course of the season was, was so hard. Dude, he would be like, I told you, he'd get to the field early. He would have his running, his workout in. He'd have his studying in. It wouldn't even be like noon, man. Noon, seven o'clock game. Yeah. And he'd be sitting on the corner of the couch near the lockers where you guys sat on that couch. Having a dip, maybe reading a magazine. The first person that would walk in, as soon as he'd see him, he'd get up, put the magazine down, and then go in his locker, change or whatever, and go do something. And I remember, like, it took me a minute to catch on because I was there so often. But I was like, I to a point that like I felt bad because I was like, he wouldn't even let himself relax. He wouldn't even, like, God forbid, somebody saw Roy not doing something, not working, not putting time in the study room, not. Like they would think differently of him, and that's how his brain was. Like he wouldn't yeah. even sit down and relax for a second. Like, you know, when the rookies come up, we take them like Hooters or something. Like we, I got photos still. We had to bring Roy and like have a photo because we finally got him laughing, and having a good time. We didn't have a drink, yeah. which is fine. But like, yeah, to get him out and to like to interact with the, with the guys, like it means so much to all of us young dudes that like this guy's even showing up. And it took a lot to 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 crack that code. And as, as he got older, he. He loosened up a little more, but to the plane story, man, like Corey Lytle. So yeah. Corey played with us, and then he goes to New York, and we're in Toronto, a couple series left, and we're going to end the season in New York, and Corey had, had got his pilot's license. And um, Corey's telling us, hey, when, when me and Roy are talking to him, and he's like, when, when you guys come to, to, to New York in the season a couple days, uh, I want to take you guys up in the plane. I'll take you over the Hudson. We'll check it out. And he's and I'm like I'm in game. I'm in this. I'm like oh, that sounds great. That sounds awesome. Let's do it. Now at this point, I've been through the the Roy stories like you, where he's ignored me, and I've, I've we became friends. <laughs> and so you you know you worked way up that ladder that chain. Yeah. And so anything Roy says, like I'm gonna do. Like I like I have that much respect for this dude, man. Like if you say it, I'm in, man. There's no questions asked. We end the conversation with Corey, and Corey goes his way, and we go towards our locker, and we get about halfway into the dugout, and Roy looks at me and goes, we're not going. I said, what do you mean? He goes, we're not going up on the plane with Corey. And I said, okay, why? And he goes, he, he doesn't have enough hours. He's like, he shouldn't be up in the air. I know he has his, um, his, his flight instructor with him, but he doesn't have enough hours, Josh. He shouldn't be up, and uh, I just don't want to put our, our lives at risk. Uh, there's nothing we can do about Corey flying, but – you're not going, I'm not going. And I was like, all right, man, well, you know, I'll do whatever you say. 
fast forward three weeks, the season ends and Corey crashes the plane into the, to the, to the building and he passes away. Mm -hmm. It was just like, God, it was so like, I remember being on the golf course, getting the call and I just obviously quit golfing and left. And it was just like, you break down and you, you, you think about your friend passing, but then you think about that moment that day and what Roy said and God, it just, it's, I don't even know, like I don't have words for it now. It's just so crazy. Yeah. And then you fast forward to him, the most prepared person on planet earth who would never do anything without knowing everything about it front and back gets this new toy, has a plane for years. I mean, he wasn't allowed to fly with Toronto because our, our, our GM, JP Richardi, wouldn't let him. So he put in the contract, you can't get your license until you're done playing. So he waited until he's done. His dad was a pilot, so he grew up on this and he was in love with it. Yeah. So then he gets his pilot license once he retired. So he's the most prepared person on planet Earth, puts in more hours than you need, um, and was experienced. And then he gets this toy and you get this news and you're like, wow, like life is fragile. Like you can't take things for granted. I never would have expected that from a person like him. I didn't, I didn't see that coming at all. Yeah. Not wow. that way, man. He's like I said, you can't, there's, he wouldn't do anything just on a whim. Like he was the most prepared person, whether it was pitching, whether it was being a dad, didn't matter. Uh, and being a pilot as well. It's crazy, man. Both those stories, like it's just, I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You mentioned Lytle because you know, my wife's an artist and she's been painting a lot of big leaders. The wives usually hire her to paint, you know, do paintings. And she did one of Corey Lytle. Um, it was maybe a year after that. And, and I didn't even know Corey. I think I, I faced him a few times, but even though I didn't know him, like you see him, you saw his wife, kids, you're just like, I'd walk past that painting and I'd be like, you just could feel it, you know? And, and you're just like, God, you feel that all, all that emotion. And you're just like, God, man, what, this really sucks that this happened. Um, yeah. but yeah, back, back to, back to Roy. Like when I got re when I got sent down, I mentioned his locker is just a couple spots mm -hmm. down. And he, like, again, he didn't say anything to me the whole time in spring training, uh, a week, the week or so I'm up there and then I get released and I'm putting all my stuff away, putting stuff in bags. And, and he's all of a sudden I hear someone talking to me, but very quietly. Yeah. And it was just kind of like something along the lines of like, Hey, just keep working. You'll get back up here. Um, but I was just like, like, dude, I've been around you for five weeks. Like, and now you're going to tell me something when I, so I, I had, I had mixed feelings and emotions about him because I was like, and I knew like, th this can't be him. Like he's gotta be, and whether it just took more trust with me, with him to kind of, and I, I remember, I think Brandy's his wife's name. She, yeah. I was reading an article recently that talked about how much anxiety he actually always had. And he was a huge perfectionist. Well, that's, you know? that's the thing that we, we judge people without knowing them. Yeah. We, we heard that saying, walk a mile in someone's shoes. And it's, it's yeah. real. Like we just look at somebody and think that we know everything about them. And it's not the case, man. And, you know, it, it date back to 2001 and ironically in spring training this year with the Mets as a coach, we brought in this doctor. And one of the things he had talked about is he's teaching us how to interact with the players and different things. And it's all stuff that I knew, but a lot of people didn't know it. And one of the things he said was when you ask somebody, like, for instance, today, Chad, how you doing, man? Did you mean it? Or was it just something you said? Just a, yeah. just whatever, you know, like, did you really mean how are you doing? Or are you just doing like, why? And, and David Segui was like that to me. Remember in 2001, my rookie year, David, what's up, man? How are you? Give me that look. <laughs> do, you really, do you really care how I'm doing, Josh? Or are you just saying it to like be nice? And I was like, actually, 
No, I was just saying it to like say hi. Right. Well, I say it. Uh, you're stumping me right now, David. I don't. <laughs> but trying to be nice, right? It, yeah, it was such a valuable lesson that I took with me. I've still to this day is like, yeah, why don't I? Like, why didn't I really like? Was I? Why was I just saying that? Why didn't I care how his day was doing? Um, and I don't think enough people like. I don't think we get to that point enough to where we really care. So you feel like you know somebody, but did you ever really like? You you you, you sent something. Did you ever like kind of pry it out of them a little bit? And no one did with Roy. You kind of just, you respected everything about him. You know his history. Like, he wanted to quit baseball. It was a, he tried to quit. And, and, and Brandy went to the store and found the mental skills of baseball, Harvey uh, Dorfman books, gave it to him. Harvey used to come around. They became friends, and it changed. And Roy used to go out and party. He used to go out with, like, some of the guys and drink. What? No, you didn't. Like, you went to clubs and stuff? Yeah, like, he would tell me stories. I'm like, no, you didn't. There's no way you, no way it wasn't for him. And, right. he, and so I don't know if he was trying to hide that life, but he had that life. And then he had this other life. And, and we, and we never scored for him. Like we just, Roy's pitching, we won today. And dudes took the day off. And like he had the pressure of having to win every time because that's the mindset that we came to the field with. The times when I was terrible and I was in the bullpen, like I knew I wasn't pitching that day. We always went out the night before. And Roy's going nine no matter what. Like, so he lived with that. And he lived with all these other things that people don't know about. You just think that, like, life's great because he's a Hall of Fame pitcher, you know, whatever. And when you ask him how you're doing, like, did you really mean it? Because when you catch him, you know him long enough, and you catch him alone, he'll give you a little bit. It takes a lot of time. Like I said, it takes time. You, you saw the progression, how long it took you to get. You'll be back soon type. And that's a big deal for him to say that. It really is. Um, so, you know. It was there. Like, a lot of us just ignored it, I think. Yeah. No, but, I mean, he obviously had an amazing career. You know, obviously our love goes out to Brandy and the kids and their family and everything. And um, just what a great example, you know, even though even though I, I wish it was a better experience because I, I would have loved to know him, you know, and just to get a get – a, even though he's a pitcher, I was a hitter, you know, but being able to pick the brains of pitchers sometimes, you get an idea of, okay, what what's he thinking? Like, how is he trying to get me out? That's what – that's what we would do. Like that's, I mean, I learned like my sinker, but he did the same thing. Like he taught me his sinker one day, but he got it from Derek Lowe. He has Derek Lowe about it. It's like a, it's like a progression, bro. We, we were in spring training and AJ Burnett and BJ Ryan and doc and myself and they're big fishermen. And I'm not a big fisherman. And, and AJ had brought his boat down as well. Doc had a boat. He had a, a lake in his backyard. And so we decided we're gonna have a fishing competition, bass fishing. We're going to go to Roy's, pond lake thing in his backyard yeah. so AJ rolls his boat up and it's me and AJ and BJ and, and Doc I don't know what AJ and I were thinking because once again it goes back to he doesn't do anything that he's not prepared he doesn't do anything on a whim ever and like we're running our mouths like we're gonna win this competition we're gonna catch more fish and I'm like first off how are we gonna catch more fish this dude knows all the honey holes in his own pond like yeah. so right where he goes should we follow and then on the end, then you're like, wait, well, do we follow? Because he's probably setting us up. So we follow him. You know he's going to go somewhere else. So we go, like, you're thinking about all these crazy things because we have this, like, fishing competition that we're going to do that day. We got a lot riding on this. And me and BJ, or me and AJ think that we, we think we caught the, the most fish and we think we caught the biggest fish. And we're, like, doing the weigh-in thing at the end and we're running our mouth and we're at a couple beers in us. In typical Roy fashion at the end, I just see BJ grinning. And I'm like, and he's like, oh, I forgot one. And he pulls out this bass. It's enormous, dude. And just trumps us. 
and it cost us money and it cost us all kinds of stuff. And it was just like, it was, it was like, he couldn't, like, like it was all, everything was a competition and like he saved the best for last, but he set us up to it at the same time. And you think back on, I mean, AJ was like, like we were duped from the beginning, you know, like it was, it's always, it was always a step ahead of you, man. That's for sure. Just, it's just fun stuff with him, man. That's awesome. And I'm sure his preparation, I'm sure all that rubbed off on everybody. And it probably, probably questions yourself. You're like, dude, I'm seeing him doing all this work. Like, am I even near, am I even doing half of what he's doing? Did you ever have those thoughts? He, always. You always yeah. have those thoughts because you weren't. You really weren't. You thought you were working out well, and you probably were. I mean, but at the same time, then you have to learn later that, like, that may not be for me. That, right. may not, that might be for him. It may not be for me. So you learn that, too, but you try to follow him. Um, so Lily, Lily's playing with us, and Lily, yeah. like, Ted and I would always go inside in the seventh inning and do, like, an ab routine in the seventh inning, but Ted would always disappear in ways. And he would always order sushi at the, the, the club. You go get sushi. <laughs> and Roy would get so mad, like, because he always wanted us in the dugout watching the game. And we'd watch on the TV and stuff, but, like, we'd go in and out. And, like, he would, he would always come look for us. And I remember, like, he would, like, one day found Lily. You can see my chair. Lily's up on the chair like this. In that chair. He's in the bathroom, on the toilet. And he's sitting up on the toilet like this, eating sushi, because Doc's looking for him. Uh. Like he's looking under the stalls for it. Yeah. And it was just so funny, man, because it just goes back to like who the dude is. And like you never wanted to let him down. So the last thing Ted was ever going to do was let him catch him eating sushi during the game when he should uh, be on the you know? That's but that's he got to a point where he's like, why am I doing this? Like, why am I? He wanted to be a leader because it was thrust upon him. But he's not. He's a, he's a physical leader. He's not a vocal leader at all. He's a very quiet human being. But physically, when you watch him, you go, okay, like you said, I'm not doing enough. And you want to do – like you wanted, we wanted to win so bad for him and not even for ourselves, for what, like what it meant to him. So, like, when he was doing stuff like that, he got to a point where he's like, why am I doing this? Like, I'll just he, – he learned to lead by example and not have to leave his comfort zone of, like, trying to be the vocal leader as well. Yeah. Um, you know, we all got roles. Yeah, and I, that's usually what makes great teams, right? You got – and usually the leader technically isn't the best player a lot of times. You know, it's it's some guy that has a lot of – his personality, it's vocal, like it's in your face. With um, – I got called up with the Yankees in, in, in like August of 09. I was there two days, and on that second day, I knew we were winning the World Series, and it was August. And I remember asking Shane Victorino one day, when Boston won it like a year or two after. And I said, when did you know? He said, I knew in July. And I was like, yeah, like you just, like you saw they had this team camaraderie. Like I knew in August that we were winning the World Series. And it, it's because of that. Like, first off, our locker was so big that Jeter's locker was over there and mine's over here and he and I can play catch. That's how far it was. Wow. Yeah. But like Eric Kinski's here and Nick Swisher's here and Mark Deshera's next to me. And Johnny Damon was right here as well. And then all those guys in the corner, like this is enormous locker room. And I would just sit back because I was, you know, I'd been around the game. It was my eighth year, but um, it's a new team. You just sit back and find your role to play, you know, be seen, not heard type thing. You just sit back and I would just watch all this. And like, Teixeira was a genius and he knew all the rules and knew everything. And like, Swisher's job was the radio and make people laugh. And Derek's job was, he was always just throwing jabs at people. And everybody had a role, which was the crazy part. Yeah. And so 
Teixeira would have like a plan and he'd run it by those guys. They would collaborate. He would come over to Johnny, talk to Johnny about it. Johnny was the person that went in to talk to our, our coach, uh, Girardi, about it. Um, and so, like, everybody had a role. And every day, like, however they were put in these roles, I don't know. I think they just, like, it just, it's just who they were. And so no one questioned what Nick played on the radio. He just, it was his, he turned the radio on. It was his thing at a certain time. And every, it was the start of what got us all going after BP. And then, like I said, Johnny was the, the runner to go talk. And Teixeira was the one that, after he talked to everybody, formulated how it would be presented to him. And, and he just watched all these roles. And every day, I think I've only been on maybe two teams like this my whole life. Every day, it was only about how can we win today? Like, how can, how can we beat the team that we're playing today? How can we be successful as a team and win this game? And I've never really seen that before because it's like it's so about yourself so many different ways. Um, and I've always said, if you want to be on a winning team, you got to care about the person next to you more than care about yourself, right? So that's what I saw. And when you watch everybody have these roles and everybody's goal was just to win that day, mm-hmm. we didn't even celebrate when we won uh, clinch the playoff spot early September. We didn't celebrate. Mm-hmm. We're like, no, we'll celebrate when we win division. Um, because that was our goal coming out of spring training. And it was just it was just amazing watching every like watching that many people come together for a collective goal, which you don't see very often, which is what makes team sports so like fascinating and awesome. And the flip side, it makes it so frustrating because the one day that one person out of that 25 link chain doesn't want to do their job, then the whole thing's ruined. Right. Yeah. That's Great. really cool. Yeah, that would have been awesome to do something like that. I, I certainly notice different atmospheres and the way different players kind of mingled and interacted with each other and um, how the veterans treat the younger players, the yes. things like that, that, you know, you made you feel comfortable, like kind of you knew your place, but you felt more comfortable. Um, you know, so you said Jeter made jabs at a lot of guys. That was kind of oh, his stick. Bro, he was always running his mouth. He was always, man, always just <laughs> I'm like, man, you're the shit talker, huh? Like you're the dude, right? And then, you know, away from the field, probably on that list of kind of like the nicest people you've ever met. Mm-hmm. Remember, side story, we were, we were playing the Yankees. I was with Toronto, Roy Jones fight. So we're at Gretzky's in this one room. And then you got to go through this room to get to a back room. So it was Delgado, Orlando Hudson, me. I think Adam Linham just got called up. And Adam had some buddies. Delgado had some buddies. Orlando's family and a couple family in town. I had my friend Joe in town. And Jeter, Bernie, and Sheffield come walking in. And, you know, you're still pretty big names to it. Like, even if you've been in the big leagues, you're still like, okay, those are big dudes. Those three walk in, and we've already been in this room for a while. And they walk in, and Sheffield and Bernie look and go straight to Delgado and only talk to Delgado. And I was like, man, these guys ain't going to say what's up to nobody, huh? But, All right, see how it is. <laughs> and Jeter stayed by the door, and I remember peeping at Jeter, and he's just, like, taking in the whole room. Right. And then he goes to my friend Joe and he's like, hey, I'm Derek. And he's like, I'm Joe. I'm Josh's buddy. He's like, hey, nice to meet you, Joe. And he went to every person in the room he didn't know first and introduced himself as Derek. <clears throat> asked who they were and about them. And then he said, what's up to us? And then Delgado. And then he joined those two guys in the room. And that was my first like, oh, this dude's like, this is a real dude. Like, this is a nice guy. And then every time I played with them, whenever we went to a city, like if I was at home and somebody came – 
and we were out of dinner or something and he would walk in, he would always make a point to come say hi to those people and introduce themselves. It was your family, your friend. Um, hey, how you doing? Good to meet you. And then tap you on the head or something and walk off. And it was like, mm. like he was like one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. And Johnny Damon was the same way. Just phenomenal people. Yeah, that's awesome. And you can certainly see that now anytime you see an interview, it's it's just so professional, right? He's just yeah. like laser beam focus. Um, so he, he would have been an awesome – you play with some awesome dudes, man. That's That's really cool. There's a list, man. I think back to that list, and I'm like, man, like you go back and you're like Eddie yeah. Murray, the coach, and Cal Ripken, and Frank Thomas, and Holiday, and then you go to that Yankee team, and God, there had to be five Hall of Famers on that team alone. Yeah. And just like, yeah, like, you know, we're kids growing up wishing that we can play that game that we fell in love with, and then you get there and you meet these superstars of the world, and they're like, <laughs> real, man. Yeah. I, I, still, I still am starstruck when I run across some of these guys who – you know, you're super close to, but like the fanboy comes out and you all the time. Yeah. So you played it, you played about eight seasons in the big leagues, portions of all of it. And it, I'm sure it went by in a, a blink of an eye. Uh, tell us, what are you up to now? Cause you were now a pitching coach. Yeah. Second time around, um, pitching coach in the New York Mets organization. Um, and then, uh, you know, when I wasn't doing that, I'm helping out here. My son's at Liberty high school. So go out there and help those kids as much as we can. Uh, anything I can do with UNLV, um, love the program, would love to coach over there one day, but right now I get to do some radio for whenever the Rebel games are on local radio here in town. I'll call that game with Doug, um, and I was doing some radio with like uh, MLB as well, so I try to stay busy, um, mortgage loans where I'm at right now, I try to stay busy, I just love being a part of the game, but stuff man the game's changing it's not it's not like you and I knew it's not like you know it a little bit more because you're involved as well as a scout but it's it's a it's a completely different game that I wanted to go back this year and coach because I wanted to understand what it is that they're talking about and what these kids are learning and and if I'm going to continue to teach I got to be up to date on what's going on so it's 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 a different world I I like, I feel like the game of baseball gets lost a little bit at times. We're so caught up in, like I said, too much information that there's a time and place for it. And I don't know if we're – like, let's learn the game first before we start over-cramming some other stuff. Um, the game has changed. It, it's, it's different. And I just – like, I look forward to the days where you get on the field um, and you just coach. We talked about being in the bullpen or, or – I just – like those are, it's like at peace. Like those are the days that my brain just goes and the rest of the world fades in the past and you just get locked into to whatever work you're doing with that, that player or those players at that moment. I miss that. I don't like all the other stuff. I just want to be on the field and coach baseball. Have, have those bus rides treating you. Oh, Lord have mercy. That's almost why I didn't go back. He sent me to the South Atlantic League and I was like, hold on. When I was there, we had 12 and 18 hour bus rides. I was like, if I see those, I ain't going. Yeah, yeah. Miserable. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned at the at the beginning, you know, they're trying to eliminate some teams, right? Maybe it's twenty or forty, whatever that number is, and um, and I think that's part of part of that process is so that they part of maybe it's money, all these things, but the bus rides to eliminate some of those long, ten, twelve plus hour <laughs> bus rides. That's a small little thing. Isn't that where like, isn't that where you cut your teeth? Isn't that where we like? People would ask me so many times, and maybe you too, over the years, like, I had this question so many times, what was, what was the best part? And I, my answer would never change. The best part was the minor leagues. Without the minor leagues, 
I never would have got to learn small town America. I never would have got to learn that although we look different and talk different and act different, we're, we're, we're the same. It's all about how you treat people. I never would have appreciated the big leagues without the minor leagues. Like never. Um, no doubt. I just, the minor leagues is what made the major leagues so special. And without it, I don't know. I think the game's lost, to be honest with you. Yeah. But I, cutting your teeth is a great example of that and learning how to, because a lot of times, you know, we're kids that are drafted, like you're a high school star, you're a JC star, a college star, and you maybe had a little bit of failure in between there. And then you get to the minor leagues and you're like, oh, wow, I'm, you know, there's some success there, but there's also, there's more failure than you've ever had. You're yeah. like, dude, how do I get through this? Right. My first year, I gave up a three run, a two run and a solo in the same inning. I was like, I don't think I gave up three in college. Like what? I remember in, in A-ball being on the concourse in Frederick calling my mom, like, I want to come home. Nah, you ain't yeah. coming home, dude. Like you, you want to do this your whole life. You're not, you can go cry to somebody else, but don't call me back again like this. I was like, oh, I guess I'm not coming home. Hang up. Like, if you didn't go through those moments, man, shoot. Like, yeah. You're, you're a tough, strong, awesome little person because you're doing laundry. You're living with people that you, you don't want to live with. You're showering with people that are that you don't want to shower with. Like, it's just <laughs> there's so many things. And it's just this grind that people think it's all glamorous. And it's not. Yeah. It's not, man. Like, you don't yeah. get to pick your roommates, dude. You don't get to pick who you, like I said, you shower with 20 dudes at the same time. Like, it's not always fun. <laughs> Yeah, I know it's it's definitely uh and that's what you can that's what you know you miss the guys though, right? You miss the yes. hanging out with all those guys and all the stories that happen in the minor leagues and <laughs> and maybe maybe the stories in the major leagues are maybe a little more glamorous. Yeah. Like you're, you're in a nicer place when that happened, not at the Waffle House, you know, in, in Augusta or something like that. So. In the morning at a truck stop Waffle House. <laughs> well, that's awesome, man. So you you transition to that. You're you're helping your son pitch. Yeah. Um, but I think you, you bring up a really good point back to your son where he's going into a senior year. Our, our boys are the same age. I'm kind of in the same boat, right? This was a huge year for them. Um, trying try, trying to get, you know, going into that senior year, some college stuff going on, trying to get them in a good spot. But your son's a lefty and he's, he's like, his mindset was like, dad, I'm, I'm, I just touched 85. So he's probably pitching at 80 to 83, mm -hmm. I guess. Right. And, and, but you're saying he's got an arsenal and he can pitch. He's got three or four pitches and you're wishing that you had that. Yeah. I just keep reiterating to kids like, dude, just keep working. Like just because you don't throw 90 today, you know, doesn't mean you're not going to in a year, two or three years from now. And then when you gain 15, 20 pounds and you start to become a man, right. You start shaving and things <laughs> like that. It's going to all start to come together. You just got to be patient with yourself. Well, that's, that's the world, Chad, that we live in is yeah. we want everything right now. Yeah. Look, go outside and get some food. Like if it takes 15 minutes, we're pissed. Like we want everything right now. We want it so quick. You know, nobody, not nobody, but a lot of people don't want to work for things. And there's nothing in, in this world that, I, I, I mean, there may be some, some things, but there's not too many things in this world that are worth having if you can have it. Like it, you need to put time in and earn it and baseball is no different. There's nothing I can teach you right now. That's going to make you better right now. There's nothing that I can tell you right now. That's going to make you go four for four at those seven innings right now. Possible. Like everything takes time and baseball and life is no different. And it takes time. It takes time to throw 90. It takes time to progress. Your body's got to grow. 
You got to get stronger. You got to see situations. You got to go through your ups and downs. You got to go through different trains. You got to strengthen muscles. You got to do all these different things. It takes time. Like you don't just wake up throwing 90. I know there's other high school kids who throw 94, 95, 100 even. They're very few and far in between. We're not those guys. Like I do 85, 84 in the first inning. I'm throwing 93 in the ninth inning. Like it's a progression. And that's how the season was as well. Like things take time, but so many people don't want, they want the quick fix. And I don't got that quick fix for him when I don't have that quick fix for anybody. Like I can make you better and throw harder, but you got to be willing to put the time in. And that's the hardest part to me about today's society is we don't, we don't want to take time. We want it right now. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, I think it's when working with kids and it's, it sounds like you're doing the same thing. Like it's the delayed gratification, right? Just letting them know like, dude, this takes a lot of work. Like, like you, you're seeing the results of the hours and years of all this hard work. And you're thinking that they didn't do anything. That they just showed up one day and it happened. Like, right. no, dude. Well, is that not true though? Like you go to a baseball game and you're sitting in the stands and all of a sudden the players show up on the field. Yeah. We don't know where they're at. <laughs> that's all of a sudden they just showed up that good people don't understand like I always tell them like the game is is where we show off how hard we look when no one's when no one's watching mm-hmm. like what did you do when no one was around people think that we just show up and we're good they don't see all the hours you put in when they're not around and it's the same thing like with him in January we started our throwing program because he got hurt so he couldn't throw so we started our throwing program uh leading up to January January was our first bullpen and we went to Ole Miss because he wants to go there he was topping out at 77 his first bullpen, and most recently he got to 85. So I was like, Ryan, since January till now, you picked up eight miles per hour. Do you know what yeah. that is? That's like, huge. Understand it from that progression. What if that progression keeps going till next year or next year you're throwing 93? I said, you think you won't get drafted throwing 93 as a left-handed pitcher in high school, throwing four pitches? I was like, let's, let's, let's just worry about the moment and prepare for the future. There's nothing else we can do. Yeah. That's so, awesome. Yeah, so – I know you're doing an awesome job with the with the pitchers over there and just anybody that works with you. And it sounds, you know, you obviously have the passion to go out and help kids pitch. And, and anytime you're giving back, you're helping kids, you're doing your job with the Mets, um, that, that's going to be pretty cool. Do you, are, do you have – is, like, the next goal, do you eventually want to be a, a big league pitching coach? Is that the big goal or um, – if, if I was – if I really wanted to follow, like, the dreams, I want to be a big league manager, to be honest okay. with you. Okay. Um, I know that's hard for pitchers. Like we have to take that that pitching coach route first and stuff. But truth of the matter, I, I shouldn't even say this on air out loud. I really shouldn't. But uh, the way the game's going today, I don't I don't foresee myself in the game very long. Okay. This is not a game that the game has to change in order for me to stay in it. It's 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 a weird game, and I feel I feel guilty for a lot of players in this game because I think they're being led down a wrong path, and I don't think a lot of players are going to be able to reach the dream and the goals that they had that are they're pretty cool like you've been there pretty cool I don't think a lot of guys are going to be able to reach it because of how the game's going and that makes me nervous and I don't know if I want to be a part of a project that I don't feel is about the future of baseball and about the future of the players right so you could see so maybe the the pro side might not work but maybe the college side like you mentioned you know VE, something like that or I've studied this a lot. Uh, yeah. I never was into D1 college baseball. I never played it. I'm not really a college baseball guy. And yeah. Junior college, I had to. Um, I thought about this a lot. I've studied it a lot. To me, and this is my opinion, it's only an opinion, the last pure game left of baseball is college baseball. 
And so that's where I see myself like being drawn to these days where I never have been before. I think that I can have the most impact on a player's life in college. Mm-hmm. So I would like to go there. Yeah. I, in my interaction with college kids, and I, I've had that a lot more recently with kids starting to ask me once they start to open up, right. And they kind of, mm-hmm. they know that they can trust you, that you can help them. Then they start opening up that, that vulnerability comes out. And they, they, it opens up a whole new window and opportunity for them to be like, okay, like Josh went through this, you know, Chad went through this. How, how can I learn from these guys? You know, so it's, and that, it's fun to open that up. And when you, when you open up to them and I think being transparent is so key. I think it's a, it's an underrated thing with players when, when they know that, that you have their back, but they also know more importantly that, when they say something to you and you respond that your answer is they know you've done it. They know you've been there. Okay. Chad knows what it's like to slide in the second base and, and take a guy out. Chad knows what it's like to hit with O2 um, against this guy, whatever situation, when they know that you've been there, they listen a little bit closer, a little bit louder. Um, and so, yeah, you're, you're willing to give back. You're transparent with them, meaning you have a lot of trust. They trust you. They know that you're not going to go snitch me on their back. And that's, that is a lot of money with baseball. Um, I told, always tell those guys, if I'll have your back first before I have the Mets back, but you got to give me your best. Mm-hmm. you got to earn that. Um, and that's like with the college kids, man. They, they, they want to ask you questions. They know you played. They, don't, they never saw you actually play. They never saw me actually play. But they know we played. And then they ask you a question, and you answer it, and they go, okay, Chad knows what I'm talking about. And then boom, you got them. Yeah. And now they listen up and they're more like, then boom, there comes the, the follow-up question. And then the follow-up question. And then you go to the field the next day, which you do a lot. And then they, they're looking for you because they want to ask you another question and you earn that trust. That's where the growth is. When they know you're full of shit, they don't listen. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Well, Josh, I've taken a lot of your time today. This has been awesome. Incredible stories, man. Like you, you played with some, a, lot of, a lot of amazing guys. Uh, you went through a lot of things. You know, we didn't even really touch on your O2 season where uh, things didn't go great for you, but you you obviously bounced back. You figured it out, and you had a great big league career. You're doing awesome things here in Las Vegas. Um, I know I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with you, whether it is in pro ball, whether it's at the D1 level, whatever wherever that case may be. I think you're going to have a good influence on everybody. Um, but I appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, man, this has been fun. I appreciate it, too. Um, yeah, whenever we're talking about baseball and talking about the past, man, it's always fun to get lost in time. It's great. Yeah. But thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Any, any last words? Say you're talking to a high school kid. Any last words of advice? Yeah, I mean, I know during this conversation we, we had a few in there. Um, it's tough. Like I said, you got to understand, and we do, the, those kids' situation and where they're at and, and the pressures that are put upon them in, in today's world with, when it comes to sports. And I, I just – it's probably reiterated, but put the work in and just enjoy the moment. Cause I, I don't know, like I didn't know if I was going to get an opportunity to play professional baseball, but I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And so every opportunity I got to play, I did. And I always tell my kids, man, like shoot for the stars. And if that's, if that doesn't feel like it's high enough, then, then shoot for a higher position. Like if you want to become the president of the United States, the only person stopping you is you. It's an right. attainable goal. And so if you want anything in life, the reality is you have to earn it. Nothing is going to be handed to you. And so earn what you want. 
Love it, man. It's, it's that preparation and confidence, right? Being mm-hmm. able to go out and do it. That's awesome, man. The work is the, it's, it's the most fun part. Yeah. It really yeah. is. But. Yeah. Teaching kids to enjoy the process. That, that's the, that's a whole process in of itself. Yeah. Right. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, I, I'll let you get back to slinging those mortgages around and get, get back to work, but I appreciate your time, man. We'll see you soon. Thanks buddy. Appreciate it. Okay. All right, man. We'll see you. Hey, what's up, guys? I want to thank you for listening to today's episode. You know, if you had any experience playing a sport while growing up, or even now, you know, have a kid playing a sport, you know how important the mental game is. Now, there are many that say it's at least 60% of their sport, and some will even say it's as high as about 90%. So if the consensus is it's at least 60% of your game, no matter what sport, what are you or what are your son, you know, your daughter doing to work? on the mental game. I want to help you out or your athlete out. As I work with athletes at all different ages, they are all different as far as their engagement in a group setting or in one-on-ones. To help give athletes some options, I wanted to hit on doing mental training on their own time, one-on-ones, or even in a group setting. So I wanted to give you some options. My first option is my online course where I created over 40 videos where your athlete can watch, learn, and go through these videos at their own pace. I would think and say that this is great for those athletes that don't want to be a part of a group setting or they have thoughts, you know, they don't want anyone to know that I'm actually working on my mental game. Now, these videos come in a yearly membership where they watch the videos, they have access to me through email during the duration of their membership, and they get a one one-on-one call per year. And this is a membership, it's $199 per year. So more, for more information on that, go to mentaledge.training. The second option is for those that really liked engagement. I've been doing live weekly online calls where I pick a topic to coach on, I engage and ask questions with the athletes on how this applies to them. They take notes in their mental game journal and they work on that particular skill or the topic I give them for that week. Now this option is a membership as well and it's $13.99 a month. I also do get a lot of inquiries about one-on-one coaching as well as team coaching. I do do those as well. So you can email me at chad at mentaledge.coach for more details on that. But if you want more information on the links on these memberships that I have, click on the show notes and I can give you all that information there on those websites. But I want to thank you again for listening to this podcast. I do want to make this better. I would love to hear any comments, any suggestions you have where I can make this podcast even better for you and to help you out. I also want to let you know that all these interviews in, on this podcast are also in video form on YouTube. And if you go search Mental Edge Training Coach, all these interviews will be there as well. So again, thank you for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Take care.